Amen. Hey, grab a seat. And as you grab a seat, grab a Bible and get it on your lap in front of you. If you need a Bible, there's one under a seat close to you. Just grab that one. Turn to the book of Acts. It's the fifth book into the New Testament. Acts chapter 13 is where we're at. And um, while, you, while you turn there, let me kind of state what might be a, a bit of the obvious for us. But um, when we are amazed with something, we, we know we're amazed. Uh, there's something inside of us that screams from the inside out that something we just heard or something we've just seen is amazing to us. And now, um, if you would ask someone, hey, define for me what it means to be amazed or describe for me what it means to be amazed, we would struggle to put that into words. I, I don't know. I don't know how to define what it means to be amazed. I don't know how to describe what it means to be amazed. I just know when I'm amazed. It's that sense of walking up to the side of the Grand Canyon and looking down and just from the inside out, an expression of words. We're amazed at what God has done there. It's the sense of us staring over and looking at the Niagara Falls and listening to it and watching it. There's something amazing about that. We know what it is to be amazed. We know when we are amazed. We struggle sometimes to define or describe what exactly it means to be amazed. And the opposite of that, we know when we're not amazed. And we know when there are things that used to amaze us that no longer do. We can think back to our childhood and think of things that we saw for the first time and we stood there in awe and just speechless and now it's just kind of become a commonplace sight. We think of those who might live by the Grand Canyon or live by Niagara Falls, and they can go right past it every day and barely even notice that it exists. We know what it means to be amazed, and we know what it means when we've lost that amazement or we've lost that awe. I bring this up for this reason. Um, one of the classic songs in the history of our faith. I mean, if we went down to Greenwood Park Mall right now and we put a microphone in front of some people's faces and we said, sing the first Christian song that comes to mind, people would sing, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And for um, a lot of us in here, a lot of us in here who've, uh, who know Jesus Christ, we are in Christ, we can remember a time where the thought of grace literally, it like made the heart leap out of our chest. We know what it was like to be amazed by grace. Some of you, you walked in here today and you don't even know Jesus yet. I pray today's the day you'd be amazed and overcome by grace. That the grace of God would reach down and drag you right to himself today. But then, you, you and I, we both know this, right? Then there's like, maybe we started walking with the Lord, and years and decades went by, and now we can sing the song, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, save a wretch like me. And we can just stand there and sing it, and it just doesn't do a whole lot here. And we've heard it. I think sometimes we can lose the awe of the grace of God. I think sometimes we can lose sight of how amazing his grace really is. And like the person who lives by the Grand Canyon or the Niagara Falls, we can just kind of zoom by his grace and just, hey, thanks, appreciate it. Hey, today we're on a journey to walk out of here amazed once again by the grace of God.
And here's how we're going to get on this journey. Um, Paul, as we are in Acts chapter 13, in the midst of Paul's first missionary journey. Now, Paul didn't call this his first missionary journey. This is what we call this. It helps us, it helps us organize where all Paul traveled and when he traveled there. But Paul never set out and said, and now I'm embarking on my first missionary journey. This was just his lifestyle. This is how he lived. He knew he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he was taking the gospel all over the known world. But last week, we began to go with Paul on his first missionary journey. And so uh, let's throw the map up so we don't just get lost in all the names of the cities. But they took off from Antioch in the east down to Seleucia, which was the port city, and then over to the island of Cyprus. They uh, hit land on the east side of the island. They made their way all the way over to the west side of the island. They took the gospel where they went, and we saw what God did in that. Now today, his missionary, uh, he and Barnabas, their missionary journey continues, and they're going to head north on the Mediterranean, and the end destination where most of the action of our time today is going to take place in another Antioch, the Antioch of the west, Pisidian Antioch. And while they're in Pisidian Antioch, they're going to go to church. They're going to go to synagogue. And when they come into the synagogue, something that is a bit out of the norm that doesn't normally happen here, the leaders of the synagogue are going to go up to Paul and they're going to say, hey, do you want to preach today? I mean, Glenn, if I walked up, hey, man, do you want to preach today? Right? (laughs) And Paul's going to get up in the synagogue and he's going to preach a message. And now here's the heart of the message he's going to preach. Paul's going to get up in the synagogue full of Jewish men and women who have worked so hard to try to keep the law as best as they could throughout their life. And Paul's going to bring to them a message of the grace of God. Wait till you see what happens at the end of this message. The people, this was a room full of people desperately thirsty to hear that God is a gracious God. And just like that, 2,000 years later, us in this room, I think we're still a people thirsty to hear that our God is a gracious God. Today, we embark on a journey to once again stand amazed by the grace that God has shown us. And so we're going to follow Paul and Barnabas into Pisidian Antioch, and we're going to sit in the synagogue with them, and we're going to listen to the sermon that Paul preaches. His sermon has three parts to it. He's going to uh, recount the history to these Jews sitting there. He's going to recount the history of Israel. And in this, he's going to show how Israel's history has been laced with grace from the very beginning. After part one, he's going to say all of this history culminates in the fact that God was sending a Savior, and the Savior has come, and his name is Jesus. And then at the end of his sermon, he's going to give the application, because the Savior Jesus has come, here's how it changes our life. And we're going to camp out the longest part of our time in Paul's conclusion with the application for those people in that synagogue and for us today. And as we get to the end of this sermon, here's what we're going to see today. Three amazing, life-changing truths of the grace of God. Now, that statement is what you expect to see on every book cover you walk through Barnes & Noble. It's what you expect a preacher to say. Three amazing, life-changing truths of the grace of God. I mean it. 
if the grace of God will seep into our heart today, it will change the way we live. These are life-changing truths. But no sermon can get at what the grace of God is fully. So we need to stop and ask God's spirit for help right now to help teach us through his word this morning. Pray with me. Father God, we need to hear of your grace. We are a people thirsty for grace. Lord, there are people here who don't yet know you and they need for the first time to hear that you are a gracious God longing to save them today. God, for us who um, are in Christ, Lord, sometimes we think about grace as that trophy on the shelf that once saved us, but now we're trying to live out our life in our own strength apart from your grace day by day. God, remind us of our daily need for your grace. God, most of all, would your spirit be pleased to do something powerful in our hearts as your word goes forth right now? We believe it, that your word is uh, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's living. It's active. It accomplishes that what it sets out to do in our heart. And so, God, would you clear our hearts and our minds for your word to do the work it wants to do? Lord, would you get this preacher out of the way so that your word is just lifted up and Jesus, the word, the living word, is lifted up with it? God, please do a great work in our hearts through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 13, uh, pick up with me in verse 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Just file that statement away. That's going to become kind of a big deal in a couple chapters here. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Okay, so we don't get lost in all of these names of these places. Let's pull the map back up so we can see where exactly they are going. They're taking off from Paphos on the island of Cyprus. They're going north. They're going to hit land at Perga. And then they're going to travel from Perga another 125 miles north. And so zoom in on this area. Perga's where they're coming into land, 125 miles north to Pisidian Antioch. Now, sometimes we can just get kind of our Bible brains on and go, okay, yeah, you know, they sailed across the Mediterranean and then they hit land and then they walked 125 miles. They walked 125 miles. Like, there is nothing they're not willing to do to take the gospel to new places. And um, I want to give us a bit of a feel for what that travel would have been like. And so here is uh, the shore, northern shore of the Mediterranean. This is a picture roughly in the region where um, Paul and Barnabas would have hit land. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, if living scent looks like that, I want to be sent, baby. I will be sent there all day long. You see the beach in the foreground, but can anyone tell me the dominant geographical feature in the background of this picture? Those, my friends, are mountains. Taurus Mountains. We have to understand, the first leg of Paul and Barnabas' journey is a mountain hike. There is, there's literally no mountain these guys will not traverse to take the gospel to new places. Where they could, they would have found um, uh, roads that have been kind of hewn or carved out of the rock. Where there weren't rock-cut roads, they would have been on their mountain hike up north to get to Pisidian Antioch. This is 
remarkable, these men's passion and commitment to get the gospel to new places. And they land uh, where we're going to spend the majority of our time and see the action of today in this city of Pisidian Antioch. A couple things we need to know about Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch was a military city of its province. And so you're going, okay, what does that feel like? Um, Imagine if you would, or maybe you know this, if you've ever lived in a city that had an army base in it, Um, A city with an army base in it in our country, you can feel kind of that it establishes the culture of that city. It has a significant influence on the culture of that city. This was Pisidian Antioch. It was a military base, a military center of its province. Another important thing of uh, Pisidian Antioch, it was full of uh, quite a few Jews. And where there was a lot of Jews, there were synagogues. And where there were synagogues, there were great places, a great front door um, to go and to get the gospel message of Jesus Christ out. And here is exactly what we see. Uh, Pick it up, middle of verse 14. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers... If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Okay, so let's get out of uh, church and our um, kind of um, American way of thinking about it. We have to understand what a typical synagogue service would have been like. Just as we have a common church service structure, so did the synagogue. The synagogue service would start with um, uh, the reciting together of the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The congregation would recite this together. We find it in Deuteronomy 6. Following this, there would have been the prayers, these these formalized structure prayers that they would have prayed together as a congregation. After the prayers came two lessons. One lesson came from the law. What we have is the first five books of our Bible. Another lesson came from the prophets. And following the lessons, you then had an expository sermon. You're like, what is an expository sermon? It is what we do here at Harvest. Open to a book in God's Word, uh, read it, teach the meaning of it, teach how it applies to our life. That would have happened with the Hebrew Scriptures in that day as well. And then after the expository sermon, you would have a concluding blessing. Now, here's what happens. In this synagogue on this Sabbath, They get through the lessons, and then the leaders come to Paul, and they say, Hey, Paul, do you want to preach the sermon today? And Paul's going to get up and preach. And now you're thinking, that's a bit odd. Why, out of all the people in the synagogue, did they ask Paul to preach? It was most likely that Paul would have been wearing things that would have cued them off that there was a rabbi in their midst. And so they go to the rabbi, this new rabbi in their midst, and they say, Do you want to bring the sermon today? And Paul says, Oh, do I ever. And up to the front he goes. Verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, here's part one of his sermon. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. 
And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Right here, if you want the Old Testament in one paragraph, here it is. Literally what Paul does is he summarizes Israel's history. He reveals how God had been lacing his grace all through that history, culminating in a descendant from David coming, the Savior, Jesus. And he introduces these people, thirsty for a Savior, thirsty for grace, to the fact that God had brought brought this Savior about. That was part one of his sermon. Part two, tell us more about this Jesus. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God for in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And so Paul says, now let me tell you more about this Jesus. And here's what he tells them. Son of God comes, Savior of the world comes, and he is killed, he is buried, he resurrects, and he is seen. Every place you see the gospel presented throughout the book of Acts, this is what you will see. This Savior, he was killed, he was buried, he was raised, and he was seen, and he is Lord. And this is the hope we still cling to today, right? And so he says, let me tell you about this, Jesus. Now we get to part three. And part three is where we're going to pull the throttle back a, lit and sp- back a bit and spend some time here. Because now Paul gets into what is, okay, what's the big deal? What does this mean for our life that a Savior has come out of the history of Israel here? Look at what, first thing we need to know, look at what verse 38 says. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What's the big deal? That God in his grace has sent a savior by God's grace, number one, for those people sitting in that synagogue 2,000 years ago and for us sitting here today, 
by God's grace, I'm saved through faith in Christ alone. And, and now, if you're used to church, you're going, wow, what a new idea that I've never heard in church before. But you have to get back to the synagogue in which Paul's preaching right now. When he stands up and he says, here, listen, 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 through him is forgiveness from sins. This was a mind-blowing concept to these people. They had spent their whole life trying to work hard to get good with God by adherence the best that they could to the law. They've worked hard. Like If you would have asked them in the synagogue that day, how, how are you seeking to live holy? They're, well, I'm working really hard, and you know I'm not quite there on this law, but man, I think I got this law down. And, and here, here's what the Jews in the synagogue of this day would have been living by. They would have been living a very balanced scale mentality of how they get good with God. They would have said, you know, if this is the bad side, I've, yeah, I have. I've done some bad things. There's laws I have not kept. And, and, and because I've done some bad things, now I know I've got I to gotta appease for that. I've got to do something good. And so I, I'm going to, but here's some things I'm doing good. And I'm working hard to get good with God. And I'm hoping that these things balance out. Or, 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 or maybe that if I do enough good, like I'll actually have some things on the good side. And we look at the Jews sitting there in that synagogue that day, and we go, no, 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 it's better than that. And we know it's better than that. And we know that forgiveness is not uh, found through uh, the performance of a religious life, that forgiveness is not found as some process that we're trying to work hard to live out. Forgiveness is found not through performance or through process. Forgiveness is found through a person alone, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's all we cling to. We will not come before God one day with our balance scale and say, see, the good side's outweighing the bad side. And I know for many of us in the room today, we know this doctrinally. We believe this theologically. But I worry sometimes we don't live this out practically that practically we often find ourselves living out a balanced scale mentality with God. Okay, God, I know I've done some bad things and I know I've sinned against you and no one else knows about this, but I do. And so here I go. I'm going to try to do some good things over here. Am I earning your favor back? Are we good now? Are you seeing the good I'm doing? I know I was just short in, my, in the car when... My wife pointed out the fact that we were lost, <laughs> which never happens in my car, only your car. <clears throat> and so I know I feel guilty about that, and I know I wasn't right, and so, but, man, when she gets home from work, the dishes are going to be done. <laughs> that at least balances it out, and if I vacuum, boom, baby. We do this in relationships, and sometimes if we're not careful, we do this with God. Like, practically, 
We live as if my forgiveness is not found only through the person of Christ alone, but like I have to do something, some religious performance or some religious process to get good once again with God. And I want us to be free today. We won't appear before the judgment seat of Christ holding a balance scale. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And if you're here today and you haven't ever experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ personally and you've been living, you're, you're here, you're in church because there's some spiritual interest in your life. You're like, I know God exists and I know I got to figure out how this all works. And, and maybe you've been thinking that but one day when you stand before God, you're going to go, yeah, I know I didn't get it perfect, but God, you know, you saw I was pretty good, right? I did some good things. It is not a balanced scale Measurement with God. God has offered you complete and total pardon, complete and total forgiveness through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and paid your death penalty for your sin on your behalf, that the moment you call on him in faith, you will be saved, forgiven completely. Forgiven completely, even for the things that you've done that you don't think are forgivable. The cross is enough to cover those. Get to the synagogue. Hear Paul preach this message. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through a person, the person of Jesus Christ, not your religious performance, uh, of, uh, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, once we know that, once we live like that practically, my forgiveness is in Christ alone. The freedom that comes from that, and this is exactly where he goes next, right on the heels of forgiveness. Look at what he says in verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is what? Everyone who believes is, come on, say it. We're free. We are free. We sing it. But do we believe it? That Upon belief in Jesus Christ, we are free. That word there is the Greek word, it's justified. We're declared righteous. Get back to the synagogue and hear this preach to these people. He's going, I know you've always thought, I know you've always thought that your, your, your declaration of being righteous will come from how good you live out the law. But he says this, by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He comes with a gospel message. And he says, you're trying to live out. You're white-knuckling it and going, I just got to follow the law of Moses and God will declare me righteous one day. And Paul comes into the synagogue and he says, be free. You're declared righteous the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, be free. The law can never free you because you'll never get there. You'll never completely live it out. You'll never completely um, obey it in its fullness. And he goes, and even if you could externally, the law can't ever change your heart and God is after your heart. Paul stands up in front of this synagogue to a group of peace people thirsty for a message on grace and so worn out from trying to live out their righteousness through law keeping and he says it's better than that be free believe in Jesus Christ to be declared righteous be 
free. And now I know what you might be thinking. Some of us who maybe grew up in some more legalistic backgrounds of church world, we're going, hey, be careful now, pastor. Be careful. Don't go too far on this grace thing. God wants a holy life. He's given us his law. He's got some commands in there he wants us to follow. Don't go too far on this grace thing. No, a right understanding of God's grace that grips our heart and saturates our mind, guess what? It makes us want to make, beeline in the, uh, make a beeline in the direction of righteousness, not in the direction of sin. We live after we pursue holy lives out of an overflow of this grace that has gripped our heart. Not in some legalistic, religious performance keeping. By God's grace, number two, Christians, write it down. I'm set free from a performance-based faith. By God's grace. God's grace isn't something that only forgives me and only saves me. God's grace sustains me in the walk with Christ. And one of the greatest things it does is it frees me from feeling like I have to live this a-performance-based faith out. Because we're clinging to grace alone. We're not clinging to our performance, to how well we do. And I think, yet I think, in Christian world, we're lost, right? We don't know Jesus yet. And we know that to get saved is all of God's grace. And we're like, God, I need your grace for this. God, I need your grace. And then we get saved. And then we start living this like, performancey Christian life of just going through the rituals and following all the rules and it's better than that. Paul says live in the freedom of the grace of God. But, but, but won't that drive me in a direction to just sin? That my sin would abound so great? No, it'll actually drive you in a direction of just wanting to please this God who lavished his grace on you. It will. So, For the Christians in the room, I just have a question. Do we know the joy, the utter joy, the complete joy of the easy yoke and the light burden of living within the grace of God? Do we know that? For the Christians in the room, here's some maybe uh, mile markers to look for in our life. When grace has set me free, I will. When grace has set me free, I will. Here they are. When grace has set me free, I will, number one, be open and vulnerable Showing people who I really am. When you've been saved by the grace of God, and you know there's like, there's nothing that I'm going to come before God one day and he's going to be like, wow, I'm so impressed with that because he knows me completely. When I am at a place where I am comfortable to say only by the grace of God, then will I be completely vulnerable and open with all the people around me. Here I am, warts and all. And I don't got this down. And I'm not perfect. And you know what? We're pretty messed up in some ways. But here's what happens when we don't live out the Christian life in the grace of God. We build facades. You know what a facade is on a building? It's when you take kind of an old average dented up pole barn and you put some beautiful brick surface on the front of it, beautiful glass. And so when you drive by on the road, you go, man, that's an elaborate building. In actuality, it's an old average dented up pole barn with a nice front. We do the same thing at times in our Christian life. We build facades. Look at our social media profiles. Look at our lack of an ability to ask other people for help. Look at our inability to say, here's sin that I'm struggling with and I need help. 
uh, look at our lack of ability at times to go, guess what, our marriage isn't okay? And I know for the last year, it's, we've tried to make it appear like it is, but it's not. Our lack of ability at times to go, my teenager is dying on the vine over here and I need help. We're not good at that because we're better in the Christian world at building a facade and walking into church and saying, we got it together, and wanting everyone else to go, man, that family's got it together. We don't have it together. Sledgehammer to the facade because we're all just a bunch of average dented up pole barns behind it who need the grace of God. And when we're living in the grace of God, we'll go to our brothers and sisters in the faith and say, in the faith and say guess what? I'm an average old dented up pole barn. I need help. And here it is. This is a great indicator that God's grace has saturated our heart. When grace has set me free, Christians, listen to this, I will live with a grateful heart knowing all of life is a gracious gift from God. There's something about grace that leads us to gratefulness. When we get that grace, by definition, is God's unmerited favor, unmerited favor. We live in a merit culture. We give out merit awards. You do good, you get awarded for it. God said, guess what? You didn't do anything good, and I give you my son. And I give you all the blessings that I bestow on my children. And when we get that, and when we look around at our world, and when we see our families and the house we live in, we go, God, I didn't deserve any of this. Thank you. Man. When grace has saturated our heart, we move to a life of gratefulness in our walk with Christ. Thirdly, Christians, when grace has set me free, I will rejoice in the cross instead of wallowing in shame when I really mess up. And newsflash, before the day is over, we all will mess up. You know, this week, my three-year-old won't fall asleep. It's like 11 o'clock. I already have fallen asleep and woken up multiple times to my three-year-old who's not asleep in the room down. And, you know, you go in the first time, you're like, hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Hey, it's bedtime, okay? Do you want to say prayers again? Okay, bud. You know, that's... By the third time, you're like, if I'm back in here one more time, boy, right? And then you lay your head back on your pillow, and you're like, wow, like, that was just a complete model of parenting right there. But when you blow it, and you're going to blow it, when you completely blow it, the reminder of grace takes you back to the foot of the cross, and the conviction sets in, the conviction sets in, and the conviction leads you to repenting, and repentant takes you back to the cross where you rejoice in the cross. When, Sometimes I think this, we think when we really blow it, the spiritual thing is just to stay down here and wallow in shame. Oh, God, look how spiritual I am. I'm so ashamed. God, look how spiritual I am. He's saying, yeah, get convicted, repent of it, and get to the foot of the cross and rejoice that I've sent you my son. Like, folks, God's grace is not just applicable to, for us to get saved. This is the sustaining work of God in our lives. We need to live saturated with God's grace in our heart all the time. And he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Keep going with me, verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, look at the response now, as they went out, 
the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Um, Paul gets done preaching. He sits down. They do the concluding blessing. Everyone gets up and they're following Paul. And they're like, hey, 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 will you come back and preach next week? Come tell us more about this. And look at what happens. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout, verse 43, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, they follow Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the what? Continue in the grace of God. He goes, okay, I just preached to you about this grace. It's grace alone that you get forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And if you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior today, and they're like, what next? What next? Now what do we do? Now do we work really hard to try to live holy lights? He goes, now continue in that grace. Folks, thirdly, by God's grace, I'm sustained and sanctified in my walk with Christ. It is the grace of God that sustains and sanctifies me along the path of life. It's the grace of, sometimes I think, and I made this point in different ways throughout this sermon, sometimes I think we think we graduate from God's grace. I need God's grace to get saved, now that's like an old trophy that I set on the shelf, and now I work really hard to go be holy for God. No, it's grace that saves, and then it's grace, it's the grace of God that walks with us day by day, moment by moment on the marathon of this life as we seek to live to God's glory. We need it, we need it, we need it, we never graduate from it. It's never a trophy of the past, but rather the enduring provision God gives us day by day. Now this gets cool. Remember they said, come back and preach next week? Did I give you that third point? That I'm sustained and sanctified in my walk with Christ. Okay, the next Sabbath, verse 44. Come back and preach next week. The next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Why? Because people are famished for the grace of God. Like the people who were at synagogue that week were like, they went up to their neighbor, hey, 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 you going to synagogue next, next Saturday? You going to synagogue? Uh, no, Colts game on. I don't think I was going to make it. Okay, you got to be at synagogue because this guy came and he preached it. It's like forgiveness is found through Jesus alone. He preached this message of grace and the whole town comes out to hear it the next week. Next Sabbath, whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, but look at the reactions now. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? And began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Reviling means to angrily insult. To angrily insult with the point of like uh, threatening harm. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Jews, a lot of the Jews hearing this, they hear this and they revile this message of grace. Why? Because people who want to live within a religious construct, they want to believe that they can work their way and earn their way into God's favor. And they'll revile a message of grace that there's nothing you can do. And they'll be like, no, but I've given my life to this and I'm working hard to get God's favor in my life. And they're reviling this message. These are the religious people that are doing that. Now look at the Gentiles' response. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing 
and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many words were appointed to eternal life, believe. The Jews, they're reviling this. The Gentiles are like, there's grace? I know I can't be good enough to get to God. I know I have no hope. There's, you're telling me there's the grace of God? They're rejoicing over this. When we realize we're broken people who have nothing we have nothing to hang a religious hat on. We'll just go, oh God, would you lavish your grace on me? And he has through the sending of his son, Jesus. So the Gentiles are rejoicing over this message. Verse 45, but when the Jews, oh, sorry, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Picture that. They got cattle prods and they're going, boy, you better get out of town. And they're chasing him out of town. And it's like when they finally get him out of town and they retreat and go back, all the believers are there like, yeah, rejoicing over what God has just done in their midst, foreshadowing this isn't the last Paul has seen of these angry people in Pisidian Antioch. Guess what? As Paul keeps going city to city, these mobs of people are going to follow him from these towns, seeking to do harm on him even though he's left their city. The religious are reviling this message of grace. The broken know they need it and they rejoice in it. And I pray for us in this room today that we would be the broken, humble people who go, there's nothing I can do to earn my way to God and that we would rejoice in the grace of God. Why? Because by God's grace, we're forgiven, we're set free, and we're sustained. There's nothing we can do in the life with Christ apart from the grace of God. Amen? And so as we close, if you would just stand with me right here. And now we're going to sing of the grace of God. And we're going to sing it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And with the Spirit's help, we can just sing this cognitively and cerebrally and believe it doctrinally, or we can let it seep right down into our heart. And as we sing this, really believe that God's grace really is amazing. That apart from the grace of God, there is no forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Apart from the grace of God, there is no being set free from a life of moral performance. Apart from the grace of God, we would not be sustained in the walk with Christ. But God, by his grace, has sent us Jesus Christ. And that's something you got to do. you got to do something with that if you're in here and you don't yet know Jesus. The way that you become right with God, no matter what our culture tells you, is not through your moral performance. Even if you're the most upstanding citizen in the room, even if your boss thinks you're the greatest employee, even if your teachers think you're the model student, listen, all of us in the room have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God tells us that because of our sin, death is deserving to us. But then he sent his son, Jesus Christ, all of his grace. 
Jesus took our death penalty on our behalf, and now God offers, because he's loving and gracious, and he's slow to anger and abounding in love to us, he offers us his son so that when we stand before God one day and, 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 and we're trying to argue our case, we won't argue our case. We'll just say Christ. Jesus, only Jesus. So when someone asks you, how do you know you're going to heaven? Jesus, only Jesus. And if right now in your heart, the Spirit of God is wooing you, drawing you in, and you've stiff-armed him and rejected him, today is the day you bow your knee before you walk out of this room today and you tell him, I'm yours, I'm yours. Jesus, only Jesus. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Church is our final prayer today. Let's sing of the amazing grace of God.